passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Now, before we jump in, um, I want to speak to those of you who are, well, actually, I should say every single one of you, but especially those of you who are new and you're um, first, second, third, fourth week here, and you look at your sermon notes and you see how many blanks there are, and that might scare you. It scares me too, all right? Um, we <laughs> I think the most number of blanks I've ever had in a sermon uh, thing before was five, and now we have like 16, so I'm not sure how we're going to make it through um, this morning, but um, God's going to be with us, and it'll be good. So, um, and, and along those lines, as we look at those um, notes, if you miss something, because there are so many uh, blanks this morning in our, um, in our sermon, um, there is a link in your bulletin that will show you where there is a completed copy, and that is available every single week. So um, if you don't write it down quick enough, um, you have a, a location where you can find those things. So um, yeah, you can, you can look at that link in the bulletin. It's posted on our website every week. Let's go ahead and pray as we jump into God's Word. Father, it is, um, it's a privilege to be able to gather with your people. It's, it's a privilege to um, hear from your Word. Um, we, uh, we are thankful that you still speak. What a gift that is. And God, we ask that you would do just that this morning, that you would speak to us. Um, Holy Spirit, that you would be at work in our hearts. That we would be receptive to the message, not just um, a generic, general message, but specifically the areas of our lives that we need to hear from your word, whether that's a word of comfort or a word of rebuke or a word of challenge, a word of um, consolation. God, we ask that you would do that this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Back in the 1700s, um, Pastor Jonathan Edwards wrote these words, a spirit of gentleness is the true and distinguishing disposition of the heart of a Christian. And as we talk about the importance of spiritual health, we cannot skip over the Christian's heart posture, the Christian's attitude toward other people. The fruit of the Spirit, not an optional add-on for those who are maturing Christians. And yet, we live in a culture where it seems like some of the fruit of the Spirit seem to be dwindling, disappearing in number. Perhaps there's no time in history more important for us as Christians to pursue gentleness, to pursue kindness in our relationships than in our current cultural climate. John Perkins describes the sobering reality of our culture today when he says this, this is the first generation to turn hate into an asset. You look around you, you look anywhere, and it seems like at best there's this distrust in those who are different than us or who believe different than us, and at worst there's this villainizing of those who are, are different than us, who believe different than us, so that we can justify our hatred of them, our dislike of other people. And this is true on social media, it's true on cable news, it's true even in person. And it seems like John Perkins, unfortunately, is right, that hate 
seems to have become an asset today, but is that the call of the Christian? Three centuries ago, church leaders like Jonathan Edwards would have said no. And, and my question is, are we willing to say the same thing today as well? Because the call of gentleness for the Christian life, it doesn't find its origins in Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s. Jonathan Edwards reaches that conclusion that gentleness is the distinguishing disposition of the heart of a Christian because he read his Bible. And he looked especially at the example of Jesus. For the Christian, gentleness, even for, maybe I would even say, especially for those that we disagree with, gentleness is not an optional add-on. Ray Ortland, he's a pastor in Nashville, he puts it this way, gentleness is the most Christian way that we can be. And I love the way that he describes that. Because as we turn our attention to this topic of relational warmth, being these people that are known for our gentleness, we've been asking ourselves this question, am I spiritually mature? Am I someone who is maturing? Am I someone who is healthy in my faith? We don't want to just be people who are, are just assuming that we are healthy, assuming that we are mature, but we want to be able to point to evidence in our lives rooted in the scriptures as to why we are a people who are spiritually healthy. And this week, we're going to look at the idea of, of relational warmth, of gentleness and kindness. Last week, we ended with this call from the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. We were looking at the topic of worship, and we saw this from Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that the worship is all-encompassing. It's a way of our lives, and it says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy, mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And last week we saw that worship is something that encompasses all of our lives, 168 hours in a week, and you aren't just worshiping for one, two, three of those hours on Sunday morning, but every single hour of your day, every single day of the week, every single day of your lives, you are worshiping. And wouldn't you know it, that right after Paul writes that in Romans chapter 12, he actually goes into detail about how we can live lives of worship. And so in verse 2, if you look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, you see that this worship is rooted in discerning the will of God. This is called wisdom. We're going to look at wisdom in a couple weeks when we talk about being spiritually healthy. Verses 3 through 8, he looks at how we can worship God by serving, especially one another in the church, by using the gifts that God has given to each and every one of us. And that's a call that we're going to look at in a couple weeks as well. And then you get to the end of Romans chapter 12, this topic about how do we live lives of worship? How do we live lives that bring glory and honor to God? And then we get to the end of chapter 12, and we see the bulk of, of Paul's concern here is on relationships. It's on how you treat other people. In other words, if you want to be someone who worships God with your entire life, if you want to be someone who gives God the glory, then this is the key. According to Romans chapter 12, it's to be a person of love. Now, that's what we're going to look at this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. It's our text for this morning. We're going to consider what does it mean for us to bring God glory through our relationships, through our relationships with those inside the church as well as those who are outside the church as well, that we would be a people of love. Would you pray with me once more as we jump into our time in God's word? 
Father, we do ask that you would help us to be a people of love, that through your spirit, that you would make us a people who are short on anger and long on compassion and mercy. Above all, we ask that you would help us to be people who remember how much we have been forgiven so that we might be merciful with others. We ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now before we jump into our passage this morning, I think it's worth being explicit on what exactly do we mean when we talk about relational war, warmth. First, let's say what relational warmth isn't. When we talk about relational warmth, we're not talking about being extroverted. We're not talking about being easy to talk to. God has made many of you, many of us, because I would lump myself in with this category, of introverts. You struggle with small talk. That's okay. I do too. My wife Crystal and I, uh, she's, she's polar opposite. She's great at small talk. We have had many conversations about this. When I am meeting someone new at church, I have about two minutes before I have to bring someone else into the conversation before it gets horribly awkward. She's always waiting there saying, all right, there's your time. I, I, you need to inject me into this conversation because I'm not good at small talk. I, I just get awkward. I'm not extroverted. Now, you might be saying, okay, well, does that mean that if we're talking about this idea of relational warmth, does that mean that I have to, to change something that is like this awkwardness that's genetically coded into every cell of my body to be spiritually healthy? No. Relational warmth doesn't mean that we are easy to talk to. It doesn't mean that we have to be extroverted. There are a number of times in Jesus' earthly ministry where he runs away from the crowds. He, he goes and seeks out solitude. And that's okay. That's a good thing. So being relationally warm doesn't mean that you are extroverted. Additionally, when we say relational warmth, we're not talking about niceness. My wife, Crystal, and I, we do not like to use the word nice with our children. We just don't use that word in our house. It's a cultural construct. It's not a biblical one. You look at the ESV, the NIV, the CSB translations that we recommend here at Crosswinds, the word nice is never used. This idea of niceness is not something you find in the Bible, but something that is in the Bible is the idea of kindness. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Nice is superficial. Kind is deep. Kindness is rooted in the very character of God. Niceness is something that is found in the eye of the beholder. Jesus, if he were nice, he never would have spoken about the impending judgment facing the Pharisees and the scribes for their hypocrisy. And yet, it is because of Jesus' kindness that he is regularly moved to act from a place of compassion. Jesus' compassionate heart leads him to teach, to heal, to feed, even to warn others about judgment. So we have to be a people of kindness, not necessarily a people of niceness. Now there's a great deal of overlap between those two areas, between being kind and nice. But a love that seeks the good of others means that it is willing to have hard conversations that niceness won't have. So that's a little bit of what we don't mean when we talk about relational warmth. What exactly do we mean by this topic or this, this idea? Relational warmth is gentleness even when I have been wronged. Excellent book out there. I recommend it to every single one of you. It's called Gentle and Lonely. It's by Dana Ortland, And he, he tells us about the only place in the Gospels where Jesus describes his heart. There's only one place in the Gospels where Jesus says, this is what my heart is like. It's in Matthew chapter 11. It says this, I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
Dana Ortland unpacks what this means. Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the entire universe. The posture most natural to Jesus is not a pointed finger, but open arms. And we model Jesus when we show gentleness to others, when our impulse is not to become offended or up in arms, but to instead show grace and compassion. Now, don't misunderstand this idea of gentleness as weak. Gentleness, I think, is an incredible show of strength because there's few things that show a greater strength of will, uh, of self-control, than a willingness that says, I am not going to lash out in frustration, but instead I'm going to follow the footsteps of Jesus in compassion and gentleness. And that is the heart of Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. If you look at your Bible in in English, verses 9 through 21, most English translations list these verses as a number of commands, individual commands. And yet, as Paul is prone to do, this is one massive description. Most of it's actually just one sentence, these verses here, explaining what the first statement is like in verse 9. Verse 9 says this at the beginning, let love be genuine. So when we're looking at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, we see this statement, let love be genuine. Everything else that comes afterward is a description of what that looks like. If you want to know what genuine love looks like, then look at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. A lot of this has to do with how we treat other Christians, those that are in the church, and yet there's also parts that talk about how we treat those who are outside of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is oftentimes referred to as the love chapter because it defines what love is. I would say that Romans chapter 12 verses 9 through 21 would be the love chapter part 2 because it shows us what love actually looks like when it is put into action. And so as you are reading verses 9 through 21, if you're going to read them correctly, read them in the right context, you have to read them through this lens of genuine love. All of this passage is focused on relationships. So if you want to be a person of relational warmth this morning, this is what we mean. This is kind of summing up what relational warmth is. It is a genuine love for those who are inside and outside of the church. It's a genuine love for those who are inside and outside of the church. This love is a way of life. It's what we think about. It's our heart posture toward other people. It's the actions that we take. It's the words that we say. If you want to be spiritually healthy, then you will express genuine love toward other people, both those that are inside the church as well as those who are outside the church. This is not an optional add-on for Christian maturity. It's the very heart of what it means to be like Jesus to let your love be genuine. And for the rest of our time this morning, we're actually just going to unpack what exactly does Paul say in Romans chapter 12. We're going to unpack what does it mean to have genuine love in the day-to-day life. And largely, as you'll look at this or you'll notice this, the first paragraph here looks at what is genuine love toward other Christians, other believers look like. And then in large part, the second paragraph looks at what does genuine love look like for those outside the church. And there's a little bit of an exception there. We'll get to that in a moment. But that's kind of going to be our roadmap for us in the rest of our time this morning. First, let's consider relational warmth inside the church, the local church. Now, just a a warning. 
And this is where the 16 blanks come into play. Everything that Paul says here, these different phrases, they're just little descriptions. They're, they're worth meditating on, every single one of them. There's far more than we can actually do this morning in our short time. So I'm just going to prime the pump, and if you really want to get something out of this sermon, out of this text, then you're going to spend time later this week meditating on what exactly do these look like? What does this look like in my life for my day-to-day relationships? Consider first this relational warmth inside the church. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's go ahead and look at each of these individually. First, and probably surprising to some of us, we see that genuine love actually starts with a longing for theological and moral purity in myself and others. That's where all of this starts. The heart of Paul's statement here, when he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Genuine love believes what God describes in his word as good is actually good, and it clings to that truth. God's word serves as the theological as well as the moral compass for the believer. And so we would ask ourselves, how often are our conversations seasoned with the truth of the gospel? How often do we encourage others in the church toward greater Christ-likeness? When is the last time that we spoke to others about what God is doing in our lives or in their lives? What is God teaching us through his word? How is God correcting us, refining us in areas of belief or in behavior? Genuine love is far more than theological and moral purity And yet, it necessarily includes it as well. So here as we begin, we have to ask ourselves, do I long for theological and moral purity in myself and in others? Is this my heart's desire? Do I long to see that in myself? Is this the compass that guides me? Is this the compass that that guides my relationships? A theological commitment and a moral commitment to what is good as described in God's word. There's another thing that we see in this passage about genuine love. It's this, genuine love is committed to other Christians in the local church, specifically in my local church. It's this question about whether I am committed to loving other Christians, to being a part of the lives of other believers in my church. This is the the heart of Paul's words here in verse 10, where he says, love one another with brotherly affection. If we're going to be people who love genuinely, then we have to intentionally seek out the good of those who are around us. We have to see others with the very eyes of God himself, recognizing that the people around us are the people of God, the family of God. And if we are a part of the same family of God, then it follows that we would actually care about one another's faith. Now, that doesn't mean that we are required to be intimately involved in the lives of every single person in the church. That would be impossible. God has made us finite. We're not able to have that many deep relationships with other people. And yet, at the same time, this is one of the reasons why life groups are such an important part of spiritual health. 
being a part of a small group of other believers where we can provide a space for those deeper relationships, where those deeper connections can take place. There's another important reminder here about not just the idea of life groups, but also the idea of church membership as well. We just announced, um, Pastor Stephen announced, we have a, a vote after the service on our budget. I would argue that that is one of, if not the least important part of being a member of a church. Church membership is a declaration of a commitment to others in the local church. It's saying in a very real way, this is my family, and I am committed to your spiritual growth. I'm committed to your spiritual good as a part of this unique expression of God's church. So ask yourself, am I committed to other Christians in the local church? Third thing that we see from, from Paul here about genuine love, genuine love looks for ways to make much of others. It looks, it goes out of its way to make much of others. This is the heart of Paul's statement in verse 10. He says, to outdo one another in showing honor. I love the way the Greek words this. It says, every one of you should lead the way in showing honor to one another. We should go out of our ways to praise the, the growth, the obedience of other believers, to, to have eyes that are looking for how people are following Jesus in obedience and praise them for that. Praising other believers for their growth, for their obedience, does not detract from the praise of God. It actually magnifies the praise of God. Do you know how many volunteers are serving this morning here at Crosswind? Go ahead and throw it out. I'm just curious if we have any guesses. We don't normally do this, but I'm curious. Man, you guys are a lot better than I thought. 25, around 25 people that are serving this morning. That's pretty regular. Every single Sunday, we have about 25 people. Man, you guys are smarter than I was. Oh, well, that's, that's actually an encouraging thing. <laughs> Why did I say that? <laughs> that's pretty regular. Um, people serving in, uh, on our worship, our music team, um, on, on our tech team, uh, in kids ministry, greeting, making coffee, all of those things. And I want us to ask ourselves what it would look like if we made a concerted effort to show honor to those who are serving. That are giving of their time for the glory of God. So let's say you have children in the nursery. What if when you pick your child up from the nursery, you say to the person that you pick you get your child from all of those volunteers. You know what? I just, I want you to know that I thank God for your willingness to spend an hour with my kids so that I could worship the Lord. Thank you. I thank God for you. What if you said while you were grabbing a cup of coffee, you know, every, ever since we moved our service up an hour, I can't get up early enough to make coffee at home. Thank you. <laughs> I can finally pay attention. I thank God for you. What if you sought out those that are teaching your children right now in kids' worship and said, you have no idea how thankful I am that 
I have the opportunity to worship in here and know that my kids are being taught on a level that is a little bit more in their wheelhouse to grasp, and I thank God for you. What if we were a people who made it our highest priority, one of our highest priorities to praise other people, to make much of others? Paul gives us another picture of genuine love. Verse 11, he says this. When he's talking about not being slothful and showing zeal and being fervent, he's basically saying my love toward others is not half-hearted. That my love toward other people is not half-hearted. Don't be slothful. Show zeal. Be fervent. All of these phrases refer to a type of love that is active. It's not passive. It's seeking the good of others. What if before or after the service, rather than talking to those people that you always talk to, you sought out those who were standing by themselves? What if you had a love that was put into practice that notices when someone has been gone for a few weeks and you take it upon yourself to call them or to shoot them a text and say, hey, I've missed you. Similarly, this is a love that... that love someone too much to let them go astray, to wander away willingly. Genuine love is not passive. It's not half-hearted. It chases after other people. It follows the prompting of the Spirit to reach out to other people. Even when that makes you uncomfortable to step outside of your comfort zone. It's a love that is willing to turn the conversation towards spiritual matters rather than just keeping it at the surface level. Is your love half-hearted? Fifth, in the first half of verse 12, we see this. Genuine love points others to the promises of the gospel in our interactions. It points others to the promises of the gospel in our interactions. Verse 12, Paul says, We should rejoice in hope and be patient in tribulation. As Christians, what is our great hope? What enables us to be patient in our sufferings, in our hardships? What is the great source of rejoicing for the people of God? It's the promises of God guaranteed to us, his people, in the gospel. Remember the context of Romans chapter 12 here. Every single one of these statements is describing what it looks like to have genuine love, to show genuine love to other people. So this call to rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, while it's a good idea for every single one of us to to commit that to ourselves, primarily in the context of Romans 12, it's saying this is something that you should do corporately. This is something that you should encourage other people to do, and we should point people to the amazing hope that we have in the gospel. That we should lead the way in rejoicing in what God has done for us. That we should be patient and steadfast in hardship and we should point other people, that we should encourage other people in that same end. Because that's what genuine love looks like. Another second half of verse 12. We have another picture here. I regularly pray for others in my local church. This is what relational warmth looks like, genuine love looks like, regularly praying for others in your local church. Paul's statement is not just that we should be constant in prayer generally, but that we should be constant in praying for one another. 
pray for the specific needs that are posted on the prayer chain, but also make it a regular practice to pray for other people in the church. Now, we don't have a church directory, but we kind of have a church directory. You might say, what on earth does that mean? I don't know. It's just what I wrote down. We don't have a church directory, but there is a workaround for this. If you have the Church Center app, which I hope you do, then you can go to the groups and look at the Spencer Campus Communications group. This is kind of like our Spencer Campus group. It's basically our directory. And in there, you, you click on members, and you'll see a list of, of the other people who attend the Crosswind Spencer Campus. It's not perfect. Other people have to be a part of the Church Center app to be a part of that group, but it's an incredibly good place to start if you want to intentionally pray for other people. This is a calling of genuine love to regularly pray for one another here in the local church. Seventh, genuine love meets the physical needs of others as it is able. It meets physical needs as it is able. This is what Paul means when he talks about contributing to the needs of the saints in verse 13. As you are intentionally building relationships with others, you're going to come across physical needs, opportunities to, to meet those needs. Maybe you're aware of someone who's just going through a particularly challenging season of life, a busy season of life, and you just want to bring over a meal. Acts of genuine love show genuine concern for other people and for their well-being. Meeting physical needs is a huge part of that. It's a huge relationship builder in a way that few other things can meet. Just a couple more. We see another aspect of genuine love in the last part of verse 13. A willingness to invite other people into my home. A willingness to invite other people into my home. We live in a society that is becoming increasingly isolated, and so this is becoming increasingly important. Ask yourself, when is the last time that you had someone from church, the church body into your home for a meal? Do you make it a concerted effort to invite people into your home that you don't know well? Or is it just the same group of friends that you always invite into your home? Is your home, this is a powerful way of looking at it when I first heard this, is your home a tool for ministry or is it a castle to which you retreat? Do you have a willingness to invite people into your home? Now, you'll notice that there are two more aspects in this first section here of your sermon outline on relational warmth. These are actually found in the second paragraph um, that we'll, we'll look at here in a moment. Um, primarily, the second paragraph is focused on genuine love toward those who are outside the church, but there's two that um, we're going to look at in this first category. In reality, they could fit into both, therefore, uh, how we love those who are inside the church as well as the outside, um, but I'm going to say that they're probably more geared toward those who are in the local church. So let's go ahead and, and look at verses 15 and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So here we see two characteristics, one in verse 15, one in verse 16. Verse 15, we see that genuine love identifies with people in their good times as well as in their bad times. So if you want to genuinely love people, you want to identify with them when they're going through good times 
as well as when they're going through bad times. In any church, there will be people who are riding high and on cloud nine, while simultaneously there are people who are walking through what feels like the valley of the shadow of death. And a sign of genuine love is a willingness to walk with those who are rejoicing when you find yourself in a season of weeping. And at the same time, weep with those who are weeping while you find yourself in this moment, this season of rejoicing. A genuine love puts other people first. And that's exactly what this is a call to do. It's an ability to identify people in their circumstances, even when those circumstances are wholly different than ours, and then to respond in kind. That's verse 15. Verse 16, we see this. We see that genuine love sacrifices my preferences for the sake of unity in the church. For the sake of unity with other believers, I'm willing to sacrifice the way I want it. That's the call here, the charge of this saying, do not be haughty. Haughty is a weird word. It just means don't be arrogant. Don't have a a feeling of superiority. Don't think your way is best. Genuine love never looks down on others, but actually goes out of its way to consider how to love others, to give up my desires, my wants, for the sake of others. As we get to the end of this first section, I think it's worth just pausing, taking a step back, and asking ourselves, From these 10 statements in Romans chapter 12, what do they say about my spiritual health? Do they reveal spiritual health? Or do they reveal immaturity? What is God calling you to work on as you consider how to love your brothers and sisters in the church? Now, relational warmth is not just something for those that, are, that we show to others in the church. It's also something that's concerned with uh, our relationships with those outside of the church, with, with other people, not just Christians. An essential part of, of a life that's transformed by the gospel is to show not love not just to, to fellow Christians, but also to, to non-Christians. And Jesus describes this as actually one of the unique distinctives of the Christian faith. Jesus says this in Matthew 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. That, that phrase is really important. He's basically saying, if you want to be like Jesus, if you, or excuse me, if you want to be like your heavenly father, then you will love those who hate you. He continues, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. In other words, what Jesus says is that if we're only showing love toward other Christians, if our gentleness is only reserved for other Christians, then we're not following the model laid out by God in the gospel. We're actually following the model of pagans, which is the reality of life. You like people who like you, and you you don't like people who don't like you. 
Jesus says Christians have to be wholly different because in doing so, they're actually following the example of God. Romans chapter 5 reminds us that Christ died for his enemies. He didn't die for those who were sympathetic toward him. And if we are to respond in love and gentleness, we have to also show love toward those who are outside the church. That's the heart of Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. It says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Just five brief observations from these um, verses here of how we are to interact, show relational warmth toward those who are outside the church. First, in verse 14, we see this. A genuine love seeks the good of those who want my harm. So if you want to, to show genuine love for other people, then you are going to seek the good of those who want your harm. If you want to follow the footsteps of Jesus, then you should pursue the good of those that you consider to be your enemies. Obedience to the gospel is not to, to wage war with the weapons of the world, to not use hate as an asset, but actually to, to bless and pray for those that do not like you, that want your harm. And I think it's really interesting as you look at this, uh, Paul makes this abundantly clear here. This is the first time in this passage where he actually uses a command. Everything to this point in our English translations is written as commands. It's not actually commands. Here, however, he gives us a command. He says, bless and do not curse. Commands. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to bless those and not to curse those who want your harm. He's saying it is possible for you to have convictions and remain rooted in the scriptures while also seeking the good of other people. And if you are tempted to lash out or to revile or to curse those that you consider your enemies, maybe before you do anything else, maybe take a moment to pray for them, to, to literally bless them. Pray that God would give you compassion for how to interact with them, even in disagreement. Pray that they might come to a saving knowledge of the truth. So that's the first thing. Seek the good of those who want my harm. Second, in verse 17, we see another aspect. Genuine love doesn't seek to get even, but instead to respond with gentleness. It doesn't seek to get even. It instead seeks to respond with gentleness. This is an important one. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 17 again. It says this, Repay no one, for, no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Your response when you are wronged matters. Your guiding principle in life must not be to get even, but rather to respond with gentleness, to 
do what is honorable in the sight of all. This is an astonishing statement. It's even clearer in the Greek where, where Paul goes out of his way to say that our response must be honorable, must be seen as the right thing in, in the eyes of, of all humanity. Here's a, here's a literal wooden translation of, of this verse. Verse 17, do not repay evil for evil, but rather give forethought to what is good in the face of all humanity. It's, it's worded really weird. Paul adds words to make sure his point is getting across. And this is incredibly important for us because it is life-changing. Your goal when you are wronged, when you experience wrong, and we experience wrong, your goal when you experience wrong is not for your family or for those who are in your circle of friends who think the same way as you, your goal is not for them to look at your response and say, you were justified in how you responded. Your goal in your response is to have as many people as possible, both Christian and non-Christian, look at the way that you responded and say, wow, what a response, even when they experience wrong. And if you respond in such a countercultural way, an earth-shattering way, when you're not seeking to get even, but instead to respond with gentleness, it can change everything. What if we were a people who took verse 17 possible? How is it possible? We're actually given the answer in verse 17. This is going to be our third point. I have prepared my heart's response before the trial. I have prepared my heart's response before the trial. Verse 17 literally says that the key to responding with gentleness is to figure out how you will respond before you actually have to respond with gentleness. Before you find yourselves in those moments where your, your desire is to get even, you should have already given thought to how you will respond in a way that brings Jesus glory. And this is really important for people who are, are like me, who your mouth moves a whole lot faster than your mind. And where wisdom is, is oftentimes lacking. And if I'm wronged, if I experience evil in the moment, I'm tempted to get even. That's just my default uh, approach to life. And Paul knows that that's the way some of us are wired. Many of us, maybe all of us are wired. And so he says, you need to give intentional thought beforehand to how you would respond with gentleness. That you should take the time to plan out your exercise, uh, your, exercise your mind and, and planning out gentle responses, not as theoretical, but as a foregone conclusion. You are going to have to do this. And you have an opportunity to honor Jesus among the unbelievers. Fourth, we see that genuine love is not concerned, or excuse me, is concerned, it, it is concerned about a peaceful life that we should do all that we can to live at peace with non-Christians. All that we can to live at peace with non-Christians. Notice in verse 18, there's no qualifier that says, I do all that I can to live at peace with non-Christians as long as they live by my rules and do what I want. Paul is writing at a time where Christianity is not just a minority, it's a fledgling minority, it has zero power. And yet Paul says that Christians should should do all that they can. They should basically bend over backwards to live at peace with others, and, and we can't control their response. Paul, Paul says that in this text. 
And there are some compromises we cannot make. Paul makes that very clear in this passage as well. And yet, I think oftentimes, we have a tendency to draw the line in the sand in a much different place today than where Paul would suggest that we draw it. What about you? Are you willing to live at peace? Are you doing all that you can to live at peace with others in our increasingly post-Christian culture, surrounded by unbelievers? Or are we people that are quick to be offended? You know, as I was thinking about this, I was, I was struck. This is one of those areas that takes a whole lot of wisdom. Because you read Jesus in the Gospels, and he says, Woe when all people speak well of you. So basically, you know, don't be a pushover. Don't, don't just say what other people want you to, he- want to hear. Woe when, when people, all people speak well of you. And yet at the same time, one of the, the requirements for being an elder, one of the leaders, uh, the leaders in God's church is that you must be well thought of by outsiders. And it takes wisdom to figure out how do we navigate that balance. But we must do all we can to live at peace with non-Christians. One final observation from this text. This is actually in verses 19 through 21. I show kindness toward enemies of the gospel. I show kindness toward enemies of the gospel. Paul makes, thinks that this point is, is so important that he actually quotes two Old Testament passages to actually stress that, that things are in God's hands, not in ours. That we should not be the people who take vengeance, but instead we should be the people who are trying to take our enemies and make them into our friends. Feed those who are opposed to you. Give them something to drink. That's not theoretical. That's not flowery language. That, that should be taken literally. It's a charge to do the hard work of inviting those types of people who we consider our enemies into our lives. And here's the reality. Without Christ, all of humanity stands as enemies of the gospel. That's biblical language. When I say enemies of the gospel, I'm not referring to militant atheists. I'm not referring to secular humanists alone. All of humanity before Christ, without Christ, stands as an enemy of the gospel. That includes you. That included me. I should have said both of those past tense. I'm sorry. That included you. That included me. Until Jesus welcomes us into his family. For those who are enemies of the gospel, their greatest need isn't to have a different viewpoint on certain areas. It's instead to know Jesus. Their greatest need is the gospel. And if we're so bent on getting them to change one or two things without showing an ounce of concern for their greatest need for the gospel, this is why Paul is so focused on a heart of genuine love for the unbeliever because they're created in the very image of God and God desperately cares about them and he wants us to do as well are we spiritually healthy genuine love for those who are in the church and those who are outside the church is an essential aspect of spiritual health And so, sometime this afternoon, sometime this week, don't lose the chance to reflect, to look at your life and ask yourself if you are spiritually healthy. I wrote it down for us here at the end of your sermon notes. What do my patterns and interactions 
reveal about my spiritual health? What do your patterns of life, your interactions with other people, what do they reveal about your spiritual health? Your interactions with other Christians, scan that list we just went through. What does that tell you about your spiritual health, your maturity in the faith? Your relational warmth for those that are inside the church, also for those who are outside the church. Look at that list that we just went through. What are your interactions with unbelievers, even if they're just online or even just imagined in your mind? What do those reveal about you? Are you a person of spiritual health, of warmth? This past, uh, this past week, my wife Crystal and I we were talking about this sermon. And what, are we were go- what, what I felt like God was leading us to go through, and, and <laughs> she said, tongue-in-cheek, you know, instead of preaching for 45 minutes, you could, just re- uh, you could just sing, and they'll know you are Christians by your love. I'm like, that's actually not a bad idea. But I wouldn't subject you to that type of uh, solo. But she also had a point. When it comes to our relational warmth, we have a marvelous opportunity to declare our allegiance to Jesus through our actions. To show a watching world that we are followers of Jesus by showing love for the insider and for the outsider. And let me put it this way. If, if you're following the example of Jesus, you're, you're, you're doing okay. Hear these words from the Apostle Peter. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. No matter what comes your way, you have an opportunity to respond in a way that follows the example of Jesus with how we treat those who are outside the church and those inside the church as well. That we can follow Jesus by cultivating a gentle spirit. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to be a people who respond to the call of the gospel with lives of genuine love. Help us to be a people who die to self, who who sacrifice our wants and desires and preferences, our time for the good of others. Help us to be those that have eyes that are open to see the needs that are around us to see the growth that is around us and to thank you for how you're at work in the lives of other people. Help us, God, to be a people of gentleness and compassion and kindness, both in and outside of the church, that you might receive glory in all of our interactions. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.